have a Bible today, let's open up to the book of Acts chapter 13. As today we're going to look, and there's different things. You're going to see it's jam-packed with so many things that are beneficial. But number one, the history of the mission. Number two, the history of the nation. And number three, his story of salvation. You know, as you know, for those of you who have been studying your Bible, you know that this is uh, Paul's first missionary journey. And we learn a lot from the mission. You know, Paul the Apostle went on three missionary journeys. And uh, this first one was a distance of uh, 1,581 miles. And uh, they traveled, just to take their travel time, was 53 days of travel. You know, sometimes we go to Cambodia or Israel or Nepal or whatever, and we're thinking, man, it's a long trip, 14 hours, 16 hours. I mean, these guys traveled for 53 days. Uh, this first missionary journey was a total of two years, and it was very expensive. For every missionary that went, it was 237 denarii. Uh, denarii is a day's wages, and so depending on how much you make, you know, it could cost somewhere between thirty-five dollars to $40,000 for one of these missionaries to go out. And so it was a great step of faith, but it was so effective. It was so effective because it was the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw that earlier in Acts chapter 13, where the Lord said in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. It was the Holy Spirit who initiated it. And then we read in verse 4 of the same chapter here, it was the Holy Spirit who sent them. And what that is, is when God is working, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, and you shall receive power from on high. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And so, you know, that's what we see happening now. It's totally the Lord. And we see, first of all, we get lessons, first of all, when we look, number one, at the history of the mission. And so look in Acts 13, beginning now in verse 13, it says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, who's also known as John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And so, I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's no doubt about it, the Holy Spirit emphasizes a change. Up to this point, Paul, also known as Saul, he's always last on the list. You know, when you read the teachers that are listed in Acts 13, verse 1, he's last. When he's mentioned with Barnabas, he's, he's last. It's always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But did you notice what God did there in verse 13? It says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. What we find now is God is changing things in the mission trip. I mean, now it seems like God lifted him up to a place of servant leadership to the point that we read about Paul and his party. You know, and it wasn't necessarily Paul putting himself there. It wasn't even Barnabas per se. It was the Holy Spirit. You know, and that's what God does in the church and that's what God does in life. There's changes, right? In Psalm 75, 6 and 7, it says exaltation. It doesn't come from the east or the west or the south, but God is a judge. He puts down one and exalts another. You know, and so you wonder, well, why was Saul now leading the way? And some say it was because he was not afraid of demons. 
Remember earlier we read the fact that he just went at it, you son of the devil, and he took charge over that situation where this guy was trying to distract the gospel from being poured out, right? Some say, well, it was that step of faith. God honored it. Others say it was just the simple fact that he was a, he was a traveler. I mean, it was, it was his specialty. You know, he would travel the world, and so, you know, the guy that's gifted in this area, it's okay, let him run with it, man. And that's the way that we should, you know, be. It doesn't matter who makes the, the most points on the team, Stephen Curry or, or Kevin Durant, it doesn't matter, man. We're a team. Let's win. And so now, you know, Saul is leading the way. And so just understand there's changes in life, but with those changes, there will be challenges, are you guys okay with changes? You know, some people are like, no, I don't like change. I got my routine. And they say the last seven words of a dying church are, we never did it that way before. <laughs> no, there's got to be change. And, but then there will be challenges because as a result of the change, a lot of people believe that's the reason why John Mark departed. Did you notice what you read there again in verse 13? Notice, and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. And so the sudden change of leadership, it didn't seem to phase Barnabas. He's totally okay with it, right? But some believe that that's the reason why John Mark departed from them when he returned to Jerusalem. Because remember, Barnabas is his uncle. You know, that's my deal, man. Why are you taking him out, man? And maybe he's upset with that. Others say that John may have been afraid of the, the journey that they're now embarking on. Because when you go up and you land on Pamphylia, you look up and you're like, okay, we're going to Antioch of Pisidia. It's 100 miles away, one of the most dangerous roads in the world. They're now going to travel up 3,600 feet above sea level. And it was a crazy climb, totally dangerous. And maybe that's why he left. Because he's upset there's a change because he's afraid of the danger Others say it may even have been because of the, the doctrine that Paul was sharing. Such a simple message of salvation. You don't need the law. All you need is Jesus. And he's preaching it to the Gentiles. You know, they don't even have to become Jews first. All they got to do is go straight to Jesus. And so some say that John Mark went back to Jerusalem. And as a result of that, that the Judaizers were now raised up who opposed Jesus. We don't know for sure. We do know one thing. He quit. He was a quitter. One thing that we should learn in life is that we don't quit. I always tell guys, that's the only way you lose is if you quit when you're a Christian. And so, you know, this is heavy stuff, what's going on here. You know, later on in Acts chapter 15, we're going to see that it becomes so big that Paul was so disappointed with this guy abandoning them on the mission field that it caused a division between him and Barnabas. And so it is a big thing, but I want to also tell you this, it didn't, it didn't end him. In the end, Mark made a rebound, huh? He came back, so much so, he got his heart right. You know, maybe you're here and you messed up and you made mistakes and the devil's trying to tell you that your life is over. Oh no, it's not. There's still hope. We can come back, we can rebound, we can return. He will never turn you away if you come back to him. And as a result, what ended up happening is Mark came back so strong that he wrote a book in the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. Isn't that amazing? 
How many of you here are jealous? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Writing a book in the Bible, he came back so strong that later on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul was dying, he said, and get Mark and bring him to me, for he's useful for ministry. Imagine that. But we learn here, first of all, from the history of the mission. And then, and then secondly, we learn from the history of the nation. Look again at Acts 13. It says in verse 14 now, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And so, you know, for us, it's kind of old school. For us, you know, maybe it's not as impressive, but you've got to understand, this is them taking the gospel out into, into frontier areas that had never been penetrated, so to speak. And what ends up happening is Paul develops a pattern. If there's more than 10 Jews, there would be a synagogue there. He would go into the synagogue, and the synagogue services would be perfect for Paul. A typical first century synagogue service would have included the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, followed by the liturgy of 18 benedictions, which are 18 prayers. And then they would have a reading from the law. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the prophets, which is somewhere else in the Old Testament, they would have a commentary. And then they would have a free address given by anyone qualified within the audience. And so it would serve as a perfect place for Paul to go and minister. They would then close with a final blessing. And so here they are, they're in the synagogue, and what we're going to about to read is his sermon. Now you guys are, are going to probably, I probably even should let you read it, but his sermon's only three minutes. And you're thinking, Manny, come on, three minutes? Yeah, you're the, can I do that? No, I can't, I'm sorry, man. But it's, look at his sermon as we go from the history of the mission He begins now with the history of the nation. Because here's the thing. You can't really understand the fullness of the church unless you understand the history of Israel. You can't really understand Christianity until you first understand Judaism. And what you find is that the more, that's why we like to go to Israel, they go together. And, and what we see is that the history of Abraham, the father of faith, it becomes our history as well. And so that's where, where Paul goes. In, in, in verse 16, it says, Then Paul stood up and, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so this is the Jews as well as the Gentiles. Listen up. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted this people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And and what you see right here is just so beautiful. I mean, it's just like us. You're chosen. They were chosen. The God of our fathers, the, the God of the people of Israel, chose them, right? You guys know that? And then he exalted them. It's interesting how it says right here, he exalted the people when they dwelt as foreigners in Egypt. And for those of you who know, you're like, well, wait a minute. When they were in Egypt, they were slaves. They went through tremendous trials. What do you mean he exalted them in Egypt? And then the answer is, is that, yeah, they went through hard times. But it was in that, in that fiery 
furnace, that God forged them into a people of character. And what we find in life is that, is that, is that as we allow the trials of life to really you know, do the, the work, man, and meddle with the middle and handle the heart and truly change who we are, it's there that we grow. When they went into Israel, there were 75 people. When they left, there were 3 million. God exalted them. God blessed them in Egypt. He chose the fathers. He exalted them in Egypt. And then with an uplifted arm, he he brought them out of it. And that's the redemption that we have in Christ, right? You guys know the plagues. You guys know the Passover story. This is our story. It's interesting when you look at Israel. Now in verse 18, it says, Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And so you're just looking history of the mission, history of the nation. He's going to go through a thousand years here like that. You know, and what we find is that when they were in the wilderness, they were supposed to go into the promised land. You guys remember, they sent 12 spies. 10 of them went in and said, they're too big for us. We can't do this. This is too hard for us. And so what ended up happening is God disciplined them because of their doubt. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2 says it was an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness God didn't abandon them, but God gave them a trancaso. God disciplined them, right? Just like he does with us, right? Thank God he doesn't wipe us out. Thank God he doesn't say, you're not my son, you're not my daughter anymore. No, we're still family. We're still saved. We're still his people. But man, don't make an 11-day journey be 40 40 years of of wandering. I mean, thank God for his long-suffering, I mean, it says right there, he put up with them, man. Isn't that funny? Verse 18, he put up with their ways. Aren't you glad that God puts up with you? How many of you here would be in big trouble if God didn't put up with you, man? (laughs) You know, and and he shows us grace. He really does. You know, I got to tell you guys this story. It's a confession. You guys got to pray for me. But the other day, my my daughter wanted to go to Target, and so she's driving, wants to drive the, the car but there's, there's no gas in it. Well, there, there is, but there isn't. The, the line, the gas thing, the gas gauge is on the line. Okay, so for me, I'm like, you got plenty of gas, right? <laughs> I've always been taught that. I'm like, you can go to Almani and back with that amount of gas, right? And, and here's the thing. In, in one sense, it's a little dangerous, but in another sense, it's true. You guys know this? Come on. How many of you guys push it? <laughs> How many of you guys drive by faith? <laughs> and so then afterwards, I felt so bad. Afterwards, I'm like, man, I shouldn't teach her to do that. Her mom says, you know what I mean? I freak out when it comes to quarter tank, right? <laughs> and so, but I, but I, you know, it's kind of like the way it is with the Lord, you know? I mean, it's kind of a, a dangerous teaching, but in one sense, it's true that that is where sin abounds, Grace abounds much more. He loves you. That's why he puts up with you. In one sense, it's kind of a dangerous teaching because some people may, may take that and they might run with it and they might abuse it. But, but at the same sense, at the same time, it's true. It's true. You're, you're going to make it. You'll be fine. Here's the thing, though. Why would you want to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? 
Don't you know that God has a plan for your life, that God has a post for you to be faithful at, that God has, he's got a place where you're supposed to shine? You know, later on, we're going to read about David serving his own generation. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing, serving our own generation. We're here at a specific place and a specific time that God ordained before the foundation of the world. One day we're going to die or we're going to get raptured. We're going to be done. We should serve our own generation, not wander around in the wilderness, but thank God for who he is. Because we learn from the history of the mission about changes and challenges. We learn from the history of the nation all these things. Look at verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. That's the book of Joshua. That's victorious Christian living. That's you getting your lot in life. It's awesome. And then it says in verse 20, after he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Now, when they were under the leadership of judges, it's interesting from a, from a biblical perspective, they were now operating under what's called a theocracy. They were governed by God. They had judges. You're always going to have people because we're living on this side of time. You know, there's a structure in life, but for the nation of Israel, they were, they were governed by God. It was a theocracy, but eventually they came to a place, and there were vicious cycles there, but eventually they came to a place where they said, no, we don't want the theocracy. We want a monarchy. We want to be like the rest of the world, but God would even use that. Notice it says right there in verse 21, and afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Really, he was their choice. He was their choice. We want a king. The guy stood head and shoulders above the rest. The Bible says he was the most handsome man. But they were just looking on the outside. But then what ends up happening, we read next in verse 22, and it removed him. He raised up for them David as king. This is God's choice to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, God, and we see Israel, and you know, one of the things that is so amazing about the, the Lord, and we see it in, even in their testimony, is they're not a perfect nation. They make a lot of mistakes, but God is even able to use those stumbling stones and make them stepping stones. He's able to take the tragedies and transform them into victories. Now they have David as king because they asked for a king. They want to be like the rest of the world, but it's okay. God would even take that, and God would say, that's going to be a picture of my son. But David, you know, Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. He was big and buff, head and shoulders above the rest. But David had a heart that was right. And at the end of the day, what is it that, that we're looking for? It's someone who just says, I'll do your will, Lord. Whatever it is. That's life. I want to find out your will, and I want to do it. And that was David. Raised him up. And he would be a picture of Jesus. What does it mean to have a heart after God's own heart? You know, some say it means that it just, man, it makes God, you know, heart melt when he looks at you and he sees you. And he sees the way that you are not about 
your will or the will of the people, but the will of the Lord. Some say that's why it just melts God's heart. He's after my own heart. Others say it means that you have a heart like his heart. Their heart beats the same way my son's heart beat when he lived here on planet Earth. In the Gospel of John, it says that he never said anything or did anything apart from his father's will. And so, you know, this is the history of the mission This is really the history of the nation. And what we find is this then goes into his story of salvation. He just, man, he zooms to this place. And again, like I told you, the sermon's only three minutes. And what you find is this, you guys. When you read the Bible, it doesn't take long to get to Abraham. You know, Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, that's only 11 chapters, but boom, you already got Abraham. 2,000 years of, of history. But boom, you got Abraham right away. Right away, you're dealing with the Jews. Why? Because it was through the Jews that Jesus would come. Right? And then you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and you got the history of Israel. Why? Because it's through them we get the scriptures. It's through them we get the Savior. And the same thing here. Saul, you know, he's sharing, okay, boom, here's a little history of the nation, but boom, I want to zoom in now on Jesus. Because that's that's the name. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that he saves you, he forgives you, he loves you, he died for you, he rose again. Here we are today, you know, we're in this nation, uh, United States of America, with all its technology, with all the things that we have, you know, with all the drugs, with all the distractions, with all the things of material and life and all that kind of stuff. And we're separated from God, we're lost in our sins. It seems like there's a chasm, a grand canyon that we can't cross. And you're here today and you're struggling, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're defeated, you're doomed. You're on the slippery slope to hell and you know it. What do you need? Is it a history lesson? History of the mission? History of the nation? No. His story of salvation. And there might just be one person here today and that might be you. You're that one person. And God's just trying to tell you, listen, I love you. You know, you're looking for love in that relationship. You're going to be let down real quick. You know, you're looking for fulfillment in certain ambitions in life. Oh, if only I can kind of get that position or that, you know, you know job. You think that's going to fill the void inside of your heart? You're doing all the good works and praise God for that. You know, it's good that you do good things. But those good things will never allow you. They'll never make a way for you and I to go to heaven. God sent a Savior. His name is Jesus. And what we find today is as you place your faith in Him, you're going to be saved. That's where He now, He hones in on. In in verse uh, 23 From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And what you'll find is, as we look at this, is that basically he says two things about Jesus. Number one, he died. 
Number two, he rose again, and he spends a lot of time on that raise, rose again stuff. And then number three, that all you have to do is place your faith in him. And that's the gospel. Notice in verse 24, after John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. I mean, for the most part, everyone knew, if they were honest, that John the Baptist was a prophet. They all knew that. But, you know, here Paul tells them, but John never pointed to himself. He said, there's one coming. I'm not worthy to be his lowest slave, is what he says. He says in verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. You know, the Old Testament prophets they all talked about the death of the sacrificial lamb. When John the Baptist came, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so they didn't even know it. There was, he wasn't even deserving of death. Pilate tried to let him go, but it was all part of the fulfilled prophecies. And we see the prophecies of his death, even the prophecies of his resurrection. Notice in verse 28, and, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they then took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You see, Jesus died in our place. He suffered the punishment that we deserved. You know, when you read the Old Testament, and it's just so super clear how they would take the animal, they would put their hands on the animal, symbolic of transferring their sins to the animal, then they would kill the animal. All that was a shadow of the substance of what Jesus would do one day when he died for us. And to me, there's so much there. He absorbed the wrath of God and he demonstrated his love. God died for you. Do you see that? You know, it's interesting, last week we read about Sergius Paulus, a governor. He was described as an intelligent man. An intelligent man. And you guys know this as Christians, right? There are geniuses, men whose IQs are in the skies, who are Christians. You know, because sometimes people say, well, you know, it's just by faith and not fact, and you know, you can't really be super smart and be a Christian. Absolutely not. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. There are over 300 specific prophecies regarding Christ and the things that would happen when the Messiah came. And so when we believe by faith, it's a faith that's founded on fact. And not only that, but who else do you know that rose from the dead? Who else do you know that conquered the coffin, defeated death, gutted the grave? We don't know. That's the sign of all signs. And so, you know, for us, it, it, to me, I mean... I was a philosophy major in college, and so I'm not that smart, but I'm, I don't know. I'm maybe not that dumb. I don't know. I, I just know that there is some logic here. There is some logic here. And there is no one, no one like Jesus. 
fulfilling all these prophecies of the Old Testament, coming and speaking the greatest words ever spoken, doing the greatest works ever done, dying this death, rising from the dead. And that's what he's sharing right here. You know, he died in our place, but then he shares the resurrection, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are as witnesses to his people. I mean, I mean, the Messiah, the Messiah, you guys have been reading about the Messiah. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. I want you to know he came and he died and he rose again. And there's a plethora of witnesses alive to this day who have seen him and testify of the truth. It says in verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us their children, and that he raised up Jesus as it is written also in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, he died, was buried with his fathers, he saw corruption. But he whom God raised saw no corruption. You see, earlier we read about this promise, this promise that was given uh, to David. Look again in verse 23, for this man's seed according to the promise. You read 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you'll read the story of when Nathan came to Jesus And I mean, Nathan came to David and Nathan told him, he said, and you're going to have a descendant. He's going to sit on the throne forever. And David's like, wow, that's the promise. You read Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through three, and it goes down even farther. And what it does is it talks about the root of Jesse as well as the offspring of David. How can a man be a root and at the same time a fruit? And the only explanation is Jesus, who's God who made David, but then he's also a man and then he's a descendant of David. Those are the promises that God made. Everybody knew, all the Jews knew, it's etched in history, secular and sacred, that the Messiah was the son of David. And that's who Jesus was. He came, he fulfilled these prophecies regarding his death, regarding his resurrection. You know, it's interesting, the the promise right here in verse 34, I will give you the sure mercies of David. I like that one because when you read it in its context in in the scriptures, it's uh, Isaiah 55. And what it is is that you read that right there, it's beautiful. It says, Ho, you who are thirsty, come. You don't need any money. You don't need, just come. You know, that's all you have to do. You thirsty, are you tired maybe of this life, this world, the, the way that it doesn't fill the void? That, that whole section right there is just come if you're thirsty, come if you're hungry, come if you know you need the Lord, just come. You don't have to worry about your own righteousness. You don't have to get your act together because you never will, you never can apart from Christ. Just come as you are. 
That's the sure mercies of David. Psalm 1610, he says, and you're not going to allow him to see corruption. Well, David died and he decayed. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. And, and what it is, is this, this gospel that he shares that, that brings me to a point that I know one day, man, you know, I'm going to die. We're going to die. You're going to die. Unless we get raptured, we're going to be there one day. But I'm not afraid. I am not. I don't have any fear of death as far as me standing before the Lord. Because I know I'm forgiven. It's not because I got it all together. Not because I'm a pastor. Believe it or not, being a pastor makes you more accountable. Not because I've done good things. The only good thing I've ever done in my life is receive Christ. And that's what he goes on to share. Messiah came, he died, he rose again. And then he goes on and he shares. Verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we need. Sin separates us from God and we need his forgiveness. And it's through Christ where we are forgiven. It says right here, and, and by him, everyone who believes. Notice this is believes. I mean, you would think it should say behaves. You know, everyone who behaves is justified. No, believes. But when you believe, your life will change, huh? God will do the work. But man, when you believe, you're justified. And that's an important word. It's like you standing in the courtrooms of God. You've got to understand it's a legal term. For those of you who are you know, attorneys or you know, maybe you've been in court, maybe on the wrong side, but you know what I'm talking about, right? And you're in court, man, and this is, this is serious stuff. I mean, this is technical, legal jargon. And when you're there standing before God one day, this justification word will come up. It's a legal declaration of righteousness in the sight of the holy God. Justified, you declared right in his sight. How? By faith. You know, I used to think it was religion. I used to think it was self-righteousness. I used to trust in the sacraments. I used to trust in the ceremony. I used to trust in the church. I used to trust in the priests. Now I just trust in Jesus. And even though I fall short, I know who I am in Christ. Are you there? I'm not talking about you believing in your head. You know, if you're here and you're playing games with God, you know what I would encourage you to do, man, when we're worshiping right now? Get on your knees. And he'll meet you there. You know, you can come up here and, and get on your knees before God and just say, Lord, I need you. I need you to come into my life. I need you to forgive me because I have not been living the life. 
I'm plain church. I'm plain church. Come into my life. Because they say that all it is is faith and, and I'll be forgiven. All they, they say that all it is is Jesus and I'll be justified. And the truth is, Lord, I don't know if I have you in my life. I want to make sure. I can't make that choice for you. You have to make that choice. You know, he ends actually with a warning. In verse 40, he says, Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one would declare it to you. I mean, Saul says, beware that this would happen to you, that you would despise the word. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5 right here, it was talking about a time where they were just tripping out. They're like, man, judgment is coming, you know, and this didn't understand. It was just so much. They despised and thought so little of the word that was spoken to them. And, and Paul says, man, be careful that this does not happen to you. You know, when you look at this section right here, the history of the, of the mission, the history of the nation, so many things that we learn, but the most important thing is his story of salvation. You know, and what it is is a love story, man. He loves you so much. He died for you on the cross, rose again to prove who he was, and all you have to do is place your faith in Christ. Repent and receive him as Lord and Savior today. And don't just play church. You know, don't just go to church. You've got to be the church. You know, beware of unbelief. Be saved today by believing. I pray, you know, if that's you and, and you don't know where you stand, that today you would just make a decision. You say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to follow you, Lord. And for a lot of you here, and I know that you guys, um, a lot of you here are saved. I don't know, 75% around there. That's the, I'm just joking. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Only the Lord knows, right? We don't know. But here's the thing that uh, I want to share with you. For those of you who are saved, for those of you who are saved, make sure you get caught up in the mission, right? And I'm not saying you have to be a pastor or missionary. Maybe you will. But wherever you, wherever you are stationed, shine and share, right? We want to win the world to Christ. We really do. And so I pray that would be in your heart. God will give you wisdom. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Lately, I've been reading this, and you read it throughout the Bible, where it tore down the altars, and they burned them, and they got rid of the stuff that didn't belong. And then they, they built an altar to God. Then they served the Lord. You'll see this principle throughout the scriptures. Get rid of the things. Put off the old man. Get rid of the things that you need to get rid of. Then, only then, can you really be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because how can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're filled with all this other stuff? So I pray today that God would minister to us. I really pray that God would bring us to that level of love.